Let's bow our heads uh, in prayer for a moment. Lord, thank you for your sovereignty and your goodness. Thank you that you are in control of the details of our lives. Lord, would you help us trust you this morning? And as the preacher, I ask that you'd help me be clear and serve your people well. I pray this in your holy name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I've ripped you off this morning, and I need to apologize about that. I don't know why I cut verse 14 in half when I laid out the preaching schedule, because the second half of it is arguably the most important part of chapter 3. It's the big why is this whole thing there. So let me just give you the bit that I, that I stole from you. This is, the whole, this is the entire verse 14. By the way, it's on page 554. You probably ought to get a Bible and hold your pastors accountable to the Word. It says, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor anything taken from it. This is the part I left off. God has done it so that people fear before him. That's why. So that we would respect, fear, understand that he is sovereign and in control. So this morning, I want to talk to you about the concept of time. Back in verse 11, the teacher tells us that God has put eternity in our hearts. And what that means is that he has made us in his image, and in this regard, unlike animals who are always living moment by moment in the present, they're not worried about the future or, or reflecting on what happened in the past, you and I do. We can think about what has happened before, and we can speculate about what will come or even worry about what will come. And this causes us a whole bunch of emotional reactions. Eternity in our hearts means that we can see things and think about things in a way that animals cannot. So for instance, we might have regrets for things that we've done in the past and feel sorrow or guilt or shame. We might have a deep fear of the future and what's to come. Will we have enough? Will we get sick? What will, will be there anyone, anyone there to care for me? Or we might have great hope and excitement. I'm looking forward to things to come. Something good is going to happen. There are a ton of emotions. We might have nostalgia about the past and remembering the glory days when things were better, you know, before cell phones and whatever. I mean, as a kid, there were no cell phones. I look back and go, man, my childhood was so great. There was no social media. There was no bullying through Facebook. Those were the glory days. And of course, we, we, we do forget certain things of those days as well. But we have the ability, because God has put eternity in our hearts, to contemplate the passage of time and our interaction with it. Also, we can use our imagination when it comes to time. I googled science fiction uh, books and time machines and got this incredible list of things that, uh, like A Wrinkle in Time, the, the famous book that's been banned like a zillion times. I've never read it. I'm going to go read that book. I'm curious about it. I, I, I also learned it's an entire category of romance novels, by the way, which is kind of weird. Um, time travel to find your lover in some other period. I was like, okay, science fiction time machine, and, which is a subcategory of the imagination of time. We would like to imagine, what would it have been like to live at the turn of the century, back in like 1901, or in the roaring 20s, or in the days when Rome occupied Palestine? It'd be interesting to be, jump in a time machine and go back to, say, A.D. 30 and watch uh, Jesus' public ministry. How awesome would that be? By the way, if you're ever asked, given a time machine, what would you do with it? If you don't go to Good Friday, Holy Saturday, and Easter Sunday in history, you have wasted your one opportunity to time travel, <laughs> the most important event of all history. But we can use our imaginations when it comes to time. 
And time is nuanced for us, our perception of it. We say things like, I'm spending time, or I'm wasting time, or I need some downtime, or I'm out of time, or I need a time out, or we have the time of our lives. All of this goes to our perception of the passage of time and our interaction with it. Seasons are also important too. The seasons as well as the times. I mean, did you catch that like hint of cooler air that happened this week if you were up at 6 a.m.? It's time to pull out the fall decorations and, you know, it's, it's the change. But the days are going to start getting shorter, you know, less sunlight. And we, we feel that. We experience that. And it causes us to respond in some way. So this morning I want to ask the question of um, what is your attitude toward time and seasons and in particular, the season you're in right now. Some of you are going through really hard things. Not all of us, but some of you are in a really tough season right now. What's your reaction to that? How do you respond? You know the famous fight or flight syndrome? Sometimes people want to just escape it. Hence the appeal of drugs and alcohol or materialism, shop, shopaholism, all these things. We're trying to escape the season we're in. It's hard. Others, and I I can tell you testimonies of people in this congregation who are going through really hard things, and they have pressed into it by faith and are experiencing an incredible time with the Lord. Their faith has gotten so strong, and God has been so good to them because they're not trying to escape it. There are some that try to fight it, like, I'm going to force the season to change. I'm going to get out of this by my own strength. And that As we've said in this study, it doesn't go well if you try to impose your will on the universe that God is running. You just, it does not go well. It kicks back badly against you. I was thinking about that that sci-fi movie, The Matrix. It's like 20-something years old now. In there, there's a scene where Morpheus uh, asks the the protagonist, Neo, Neo, do you believe in fate? And he says, no, I don't. And he says, why not? He says, because I don't like the idea that I'm not in control of my life. That's the fight. I'm going to fight against it. I want control of the seasons. I'm going to get out of this problem by my strength, fate or providence or sovereignty, whatever you you want to put in there. I'm going to do it by my strength, says some. You guys are probably familiar with the the poem Invictus, or at least you know the last two lines of it. It's it's William Ernest uh, Henley, 1875, wrote this four stanza poem. Let me just read the first and last to you. And he was going through a hard season, and he was one of those guys that was going to fight it. And he said, out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. That's the word invictus. In Latin, it's unconquerable. And then two more stanzas like that. And then he comes to this conclusion. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishment the scroll I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Wow, really? I mean, I'm all for, you know, bolstering yourself up to go through the hard season and take courage, but you are the master of your fate and the captain of your soul? You actually think you're in control of this. That does not go well. Now, he mentions whatever gods may be. Clearly, this is not a Christian man. And so if you're a you know, a Darwinist, and you think that you're here totally by accident, or you're a deist, you think God has wound up the universe and then backed off like a watch to just let it unwind, then you better fight hard because no one's at the switch. You better do whatever you can to try and steer this thing because it is going poorly, right? But 
that's not what we learn in Ecclesiastes. The preacher, Kohelet in Hebrew, the preacher knows otherwise. He knows better. And so he gives us in chapter 3 a poem made famous, you know, 50 years ago by the birds in the song, Turn, Turn, Turn. He gives us this poem that's about seasons, and he starts out, he says, for everything there's a season and a time for every matter under heaven, which is another way of saying under the sun. So the best that secular wisdom can figure out is to recognize there are seasons that have been appointed by someone, and there is a pattern, there is a um, a, there is a cyclical repetition to things, but things go well in certain seasons. And so this poem has the word time in it like 27 times, and, and it's almost like the ticking of a clock. There's a time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to pluck, a time to kill, a time to heal. It's like tick, tock, tick, tock, and it's doing that on purpose. And it's, it's helping us think about um, everything, really. It's not exhaustive, but it is comprehensive, this type of literary device where you say a time to be born and a time to die is called a merism, and it's, it's giving polar opposites, and it means everything in between. Think of um, Charles Dickens' Tale of Two Cities. He starts out, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times, and he, he gives five or six of those. We all know that first line, and I looked it up, and there's like five or six merisms there of, of wisdom and foolishness, and he goes back and forth at the opening of that. Well, even before that, Kohelet, the preacher here in Ecclesiastes, gives us these things and in fact, it's 14 lines of these, and there seven is the number in, in Hebrew thinking of completeness. And so twice, there's 14, so twice, two times seven, he's really saying this is the, the sweep of the human experience. Again, it's not exhaustive. You can find things that, that are, would fit in here but aren't in this list. But he's saying, think about all of life. There's a season for certain things, and that is really by God's design. In fact, the way that this metrically moves back and forth might make a Hebrew reader think of Genesis and God's creation. In seven days, God made everything and put it in order, you know, especially when he, he establishes the rhythm of day and night. There was darkness, there was night, there was evening, there was morning the first day. There's a rhythm to Genesis 1 as well, because there's a creator who's in charge of things. Now, the big question comes in verse 9. In verse 9, he says, what gain has the worker from his toil? Now, in our third week of Ecclesiastes, if you listen to the first two sermons, you are ready to say nothing is the answer, right? It's a rhetorical question again. What gain is there from all the toil that the worker does? Nothing. But if you look at this text, he doesn't say that. Now, I think it, it could be implied here, but note, he doesn't actually say it. He says, what gain is the worker from his toil? And his answer is, I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has put eternity into man's heart. He doesn't go negative right here. He's looking to God and saying, God is in charge of the seasons, and there's a beauty to the rhythm, that there's a, there, God is in charge of this. And it's beautiful, but there are limits to our sight. It says, he has put eternity in man's heart, yet he's done so that he, meaning man, cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. We don't get all the answers. We don't know all the answers now, and I don't think we actually do get them all. We think, when I die and go to heaven, I'm going to get all the answers. Not possible. He's an infinite being, and we are finite. Even in heaven, we are finite. Deuteronomy 29 says, the secret things belong to the Lord, 
but he has given certain things to us to pass to our children. We do have knowledge, for sure, but God has not given us omniscience. We don't know all things. There is a limit to this. And the key verse, of course, that I started with was the one I left off the reading with apologies, is that all of this happens so that we will learn to fear God. And that's the big point here. The times and the seasons of our lives teach us to fear and trust God. And I want to ask, is this season doing that for you? Is what you're going through right now, whether it's a really great thing and awesome or a really hard thing or something kind of average or whatever in between, is it helping you revere God, fear him, trust him, and trust your life to him and say, okay, God, I'm walking with you in this. You're in control. Now, this is the weird dilemma between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. And it's a real, the word is antinomy, not a paradox. A paradox is an apparent contradiction, and an antinomy is an actual contradiction. And the contradiction is this. God is totally sovereign over the universe. His will will be done. And yet, you and I have agency, and we have responsibility to make decisions. Free will and God's sovereignty. We see both in Scripture, and so we're in that, that delicate place. And this, this one, this writing, is pointing us up to start looking at what God is doing and trust Him. It's not saying um, focus on your work so much. It's focus on His work. Look at what He's done in the times and seasons. Now, it's interesting how much time extends this and continues this teaching into the New Testament. Paul the Apostle writes in Galatians 4 that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. The fullness of time. There was something about God's plan from the beginning that in a certain moment, the son of God was going to enter into humanity. The fullness of time, it's called. And Jesus was keenly aware of timing. Remember his public message, when, if you go to the Mark's Gospel, chapter 1, when he finally comes out into the public and says, whatever he's going to preach, it's the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. And throughout his ministry, Jesus was aware of time. At the wedding where he turned water into wine, his mom asked him to do something to solve a problem, and he said, it's not yet my time. And yet he chose to honor his mother's wish, and his glory was revealed there, and his disciples put their faith in him, it says. But throughout his ministry, he's, he is very in tune with his father's timing. So the gospel reading I picked for this morning from John 7, his brothers want him to go up to the Feast of Booths because his ministry has become fairly popular. And they're like, hey, you're a public figure now. You got to go up there and dazzle them with your signs and wonders. And he says, you can go up anytime you want, but my time has not yet come. He's aware that if he had gone up in a full you know, public view, probably one of two things would happen. Either they would try to force him, the popular crowd would try to force him to become king, which is what happened after he fed the 5,000, if you go back and look at that story. They wanted to make him king by force. Or there would be a, a very violent thing where they try to kill him too early. And so he says, you go up, I'm staying back. And then, and then we learn he slips up like midweek in secret and then does give a public teaching at the end of the week. And so he was... He was aware of the time, the time, where, what God was doing. He was paying attention. God is sovereign over the times and the seasons. When he's going to ascend to the Father, his disciples say, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And his answer is, it's not for you to know the times and seasons the Father has affixed by his own authority. 
but you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses. In other words, you do have work to do, and God's going to empower you to do it, and you're going to give witness to me, but you don't get to know the times and seasons. And then he ascends to to heaven, and they thought he's going to come back in that, that first generation. Here we are 2,000 years later, still waiting. Wow, when is he going to come back? Now, personal seasons, as well as bigger seasons that, that society's going through, um, are interesting. When we're in these seasons that we don't like, and we try to force our will on them, it doesn't go well. I, I've done this, tw- I can think, I've done, I'm sure I've done it more than twice, but I can think of two specific times. One, when I was an engineer, and I wanted to get out of Chicago, and Heather had finished her master's, I decided... I want to work in North Carolina. So I asked for a transfer with my engineering company, which was all over the country. I said, I want to go work in the North Carolina office. And the VP called down there, and they said, yeah, they don't, they don't have a job opening. They're not looking for engineers. So you know what I did? I booked a flight, and Heather and I flew down to Raleigh, and we went and just scheduled a kind of visit. Like, I didn't believe the HR and the vice presidents. Like, I'm going to woo them into giving me a job, and I'm going to force my will, and I'm going to get moved to North Carolina. Do you know how that went? It was a nice visit and an expensive trip to go and find out that I can't force my will on this situation. I'm just not that influential. And then I, I've done the same thing. When I was in seminary, I was sure I was going to tell God to call me to Colorado because I like mountain biking and skiing, and I was like, that's where I'm going to go. And I pushed as hard as I could on that door, and it was painful how much he was not calling me there, thankfully because I love Florida, and I'm grateful he sent me here. But I was like, Florida? I don't want to go to Florida. It's like hot there, and it's just Disney, and I don't like either of those things. I'm out. But it's awesome. I love it here. I thank the Lord every day that he sent me here and not to Colorado for a whole bunch of other reasons. But I tried to force my will on it instead of asking him and seeking him and learning this lesson. The times and the seasons should teach us to fear and trust God. You know, it's been a while. I asked my daughter if it was okay if I used the Fellowship of the Rings quote, and she said, it's okay. You've been talking about the TV show Alone too much. No more Alone references. You can go back to Lord of the Rings for a moment. (laughs) And I was thinking about a scene, which in the movie is in the Mines of Moria, but in the books is actually in chapter two. It's okay if you don't know Lord of the Rings. Of Hobbit, which is a small person, has a ring of power, and the wizard has found out which ring it is. It's got, it's like the most evil of everything, and it's come into the possession of this hobbit. And evil is rising. See, what I like so much about Lord of the Rings is, although it's full of all kinds of fantasy and has dwarfs and wizards and elves and stuff, the worldview is accurate to how our world really works. There is, there is darkness and evil resident in the, the, their worldview and in our world. And there is a higher power that's in charge of things. And so in this conversation, Um, when the discussion of how evil is rising in our days happens, Frodo the Hobbit says this, I wish it need not have happened in my time. And the wise Gandalf says, so do I, and so do all who live to see such times. But that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to us. Recognize there's a giver of the time and season you're in. You didn't choose to be born in this country, or maybe some of you weren't, but most of you were. You didn't choose a lot of the things that you were experiencing. They were given to you. Your choice is to decide what to do with what's been given to you, and that's where that human responsibility part comes in. What will you do with it? Now, it's interesting. In the New Testament, the the wisdom writer James in the New Testament says something about the arrogance of trying to assert my will on the problem to fix it. He says, come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow, 
We'll go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Sounds like Ecclesiastes, right? Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance and all such boasting is evil. If the Lord wills, I would love to move to such and such a place. If the Lord wills, I would like this season to pass quicker. It's hard. Can I get through it? Get me to the next season. Lord, if you will. But what does Ecclesiastes 3 say? That, the, that in uh, uh, verse 12 and 13, he says, I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in the, his toil that is God's gift to them. Your food, your daily living, the work you've got, it's God's gift to you. Be joyful that you get the day. Be joyful that you get the life. And do good in it. Don't do evil in it. Do good in it. Now, here's the application. I want you to look for the kingdom of God. Jesus said the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. It is clashing in. The Apostle Paul says the ends, plural, of the ages is upon us, meaning the old age, the old covenant age was coming. Jesus arrived and the new covenant age started, but it overlaps like this, and we're right in the middle. The ends have come upon us. We're in between. The kingdom is already now here, happening, and yet, as the liturgy says every week, God has not yet put all things in subjection under his Christ. So we're living in that gap. Seek the kingdom. Ask the Lord to break into the moment you're in in your life and the lives of those around you. Watch for it, pray for it, participate with it instead of resisting it. Now, since I've been thinking about sci-fi movies and time travel and stuff, I'm gonna, let me close with this. In my men's group this week, I, I, just, I was asking the Lord for a word from this text for me personally, and the movie Back to the Future, which somebody had mentioned, a, a quote from that came into my mind. If you know it, there's Marvin Berry, the cousin of Chuck Berry, the musician, is playing at a dance, but he's hurt his hand, and they need a guitarist. And it just so turns out that, that uh, the character played by Michael J. Fox is a guitarist, and he, and he grabs a guitar, and he turns around to the band, and he says this, this is a blues riff in B, watch me for the changes and try to keep up. And then he swings around and he plays that Johnny Be Good blues song that Chuck Berry wrote and just crushes it and brings the whole house down and the band is trying to keep up with him. It's a blues riff in B, watch me for the changes and try and keep up. That was the word for me from this text. The kingdom of God is happening all around you. Are you watching? The Lord's saying, watch me for the changes. He is sovereign over your circumstances. He is working in your life. The seasons and the times are there so that you will fear him. Not I'm afraid of him, but revere his sovereignty, that you'll trust he's in control of it. He orchestrated the details right down to the moment of his son's death, and Jesus knew exactly when his time was coming. He's not a watchmaker off in the distance that's asleep at the switch. He is in the very details of your life and those hard, hard things you're going through. God is orchestrating all of it. Trust him. Trust him. Would you pray with me? Lord, I thank you that you're in control because you are the only one who is competent to be. Would you help us to trust you? Lord, I pray that you would draw us in. I pray for our church to have many eyes to see your kingdom. I pray that for myself as well. Lord, that we would see what you are doing and join you in it. Help us to be trusting of your lordship. 
and relinquish our own. And I pray this in your holy name. Amen.